This is History 2311, Week 4B, America First. Live there in the mystic city of the empire that's unseen. A grand and noble wizard who had once a wondrous dream. In this dream he saw old glory and the cause of liberty. Being supplanted by a people who had come across the sea, bringing with them flags and customs belonging to primeval man, to affix and plant them firmly in this our native land. Land, 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 land of the Yucatan, Protestant, Gentile, native born man, who united, wrote and proved, royal sons of the red, white, Sublime lineage written in history So, yes, that was, in fact, a Ku Klux Klan song I just played, recorded by a group called the 100% Americans in 1922. Take note of that name. I hope it goes without saying that playing that song does not represent any kind of endorsement. My lecture today is called America First. In my previous lecture for this week, I showed you this slide of Donald Trump using that slogan, America First, in his inaugural address. The slogan America First has a kind of interesting history. Woodrow Wilson used the slogan America First uh, back in 1915. At first, it referred to his desire to keep the United States out of the Great War. In other words, we have to look after America first. But this slogan has always been ambiguous. It could be adopted by both parties. It was a democratic slogan in 1916, but only four years later, it was used as a slogan for the Republican Party. The election of 1920 turned in part on the issue of whether the United States should join the League of Nations. And so when Harding said America first, he meant America should stay out of the League of Nations, should stay out of European affairs, America first. But from the start, this slogan had other overtones. Woodrow Wilson's Bureau of Education had an America First campaign, the point of which was to assimilate new immigrants, to encourage new American citizens to put loyalty to the United States above allegiance to the nations they had left. There was a related slogan that came from the Republican side of the aisle, 100% Americanism. Here's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt saying, there can be no 50-50 Americanism in this country. There is room here only for 100% Americanism. Now, Roosevelt was, by the standards of his day, pro-immigrant, pro-immigration. He supported immigration to the United States. He considered himself a friend to immigrants. Certainly he was a better friend to immigrants than Woodrow Wilson, but he did insist on assimilation, on the idea that immigrants would give up their culture and the ways of their old life and embrace the mainstream culture of white America. Teddy Roosevelt was a firm believer in the melting pot, which is a term that emerged in this era. The, the idea was older, but the term itself, melting pot, comes from a play written in 1909, celebrating the idea that immigrants from all over the world, Germans and Frenchmen, well, mostly Europe, Germans and Frenchmen, Irishmen and Englishmen, Jews and Russians, that they would all in the crucible of America, that is the melting pot, the cauldron of America, be melted down into a new race, if you will. 
So when Roosevelt talked about being 100% American, I mean, he certainly wasn't embracing modern multiculturalism, but he was, by his lights, pro-immigrant. That kind of nuance, that complexity would fade from American politics in the years after the First World War. And slogans like 100% American and America first would take on a starker, much more racial meaning. So my lecture today is about the United States immediately after the First World War. And really it's about a kind of spasm of fear, of nativism, of reaction against change, a kind of contraction of liberty, a hardening of the nation's borders and a hardening of the nation's spirit. I won't say that all of this was caused by the war because some of the forces at play, the racism and the nativism were really old forces running deep in United States history. But the war definitely played a part. As the war ended in 1918 and moving into the 1920s, there was this moment of fear, of reaction, of bigotry. And it took several forms. The ones I'm going to talk about today are the Red Scare of 1919, uh, the rise of Christian fundamentalism, prohibition or the war on alcohol, the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, and immigration restriction, the closing of America's doors to immigrants from much of the world. Now, this might not be the roaring 20s as you imagine it. You might have been hoping to hear about flappers and speakeasies and jazz, the Great Gatsby, the Harlem Renaissance. We're going to talk about all of those things next week. The United States is a big place and more than one thing can be happening at once. So I want to start with what the Great War what we now call World War I or the First World War, did to American life. Here's a question that historians debate. Did World War I and its aftermath represent the end of progressive reform, that is the death of the progressive movement, or did it represent its zenith, its triumph? Progressives themselves were of two minds about the war. I mean, some progressives like Jane Addams were pacifists. They opposed the war, they hated war, they worried about what it would do to American society. But other progressives like Wilson and Roosevelt saw it as a golden opportunity to remake the world uh, the same way the progressives were remaking American society. You know, I talked about the League of Nations being progressivism on a global scale. I showed you this quote last time where Wilson himself had doubts about leading the United States into war, saying, if I lead these people into war, they will forget there was ever such a thing as tolerance. The spirit of ruthless brutality will enter into the very fiber of our national life. Now, there's some question as to whether Wilson actually ever said this or whether John Dos Passos, the author John Dos Passos, kind of put these words in his mouth. Whatever the truth of it is, this ended up being a pretty good prediction. The war did do something to American life, to the spirit or the culture of the country. And it would be hard to say that it was a good thing. Going to war, uh, like most wars do, expanded the power of the American state, ex expanded the repressive power of the American state, the power and willingness of the government to control its citizens. And it expanded the willingness of citizens to go along with even participate in that repression. It also intensified demands for 100% Americanism in multiple senses. In 1917, Congress passed the Espionage Act. Now that name makes it sound like the act was about spying, but it also prohibited interfering with the draft in any way or making false statements that might interfere with the war effort. Now, this was followed by the Sedition Act in 1918, which made it a crime to cast contempt, scorn, or disrepute on the government 
or the war effort. Think about that for a minute. I mean, isn't casting contempt on the government, like, isn't that a great American pastime? Don't Americans from all walks of life do that every day? More than 2,000 people would be charged with violating these laws, but the laws were not consistently applied. They were not, in fact, used against everybody who criticized the government or criticized the war effort. In particular, these laws were used against socialists, labor leaders, and leftists who advocated striking or criticized the war. Most famously, the labor leader and socialist Eugene Debs was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for the crime of giving speeches criticizing the war. Now, Debs was unrepentant. In the election of 1920, he actually ran for president from prison and got nearly 1 million votes, uh, which is a sign of socialism's real strength in this era. Here's a button advertising convict number 9653 for president. But prison did basically break Debs. They ended up letting him out early because of his poor health and he, he died soon after. Repression in this era didn't just come from the federal government though. More extreme efforts at repression came at the state level and even more from just private groups of citizens. Uh, groups like the Ku Klux Klan, which I'll get to, but also groups like the Liberty League and the American Legion. Several states passed English-only laws in these years, making it illegal to teach other languages in schools, making it illegal to conduct business in other languages, even to speak on the telephone, the new invention of the telephone, in languages other than English. The war years saw mob violence and even lynchings of German Americans seen as enemies because of the war, uh, people in the labor movement, and, and even just slackers, men who had not registered for the draft. These actions were all closely associated with those slogans, America first and 100% American. Here's a flyer from the American Legion. So that's an organization for veterans telling veterans of the big war, that is World War I, to keep fighting at home for 100% Americanism. And veterans groups very often embraced this kind of angry, bellicose patriotism. So this, this sort of spasm of intolerance or squelching of political liberties uh, even though inspired by the war, it did not end when the war ended in November 1918, at least not right away. If anything, it got worse in what we call the Red Scare of 1919-1920. You might be more familiar with the Red Scare of the early Cold War, so the 1940s and 50s, but the first Red Scare was, if anything, more intense. It was triggered in part by the Russian Revolution. So the, the Bolsheviks, the communists, took power in Russia in 1917, creating the Soviet Union. And crucially, they called for a revolution of workers around the world. There was a wave of labor activism in the United States after the war. In a lot of industries, wages had been strictly controlled during the war. And in fact, unions had been outlawed in, in several key industries. And then even the unions that did exist had kind of promised not to strike until the war was over. But the end of the war saw a wave of strikes in the Seattle shipyards, uh, in the coal mines of Kentucky and Tennessee, something like half a million steel workers around Chicago went on strike. In the year 1919, one in every five workers in America went on strike. That's a total of something like 4 million people. In Boston, even the police went on strike. The Massachusetts governor, Calvin Coolidge, made a name for himself, became a national figure by the way he fired the striking police and called up the state militia to restore order. So this wave of labor activism and strikes was perceived by 
kind of guardians of order by the capitalist class as the stirrings of socialist revolution, as being the leading edge of the international communist conspiracy. This cartoon refers to the idea of America as the world's melting pot, but it says, we can't digest the scum. And here Uncle Sam is, is unhappily skimming off the scum of the world's melting pot, uh, which is labeled things like Bolshevism, that is communism, the red flag, the IWW, which is a union, the international workers of the world, the mad notions of Europe and anarchy. Now, all of those labels are political rather than racial or ethnic, but it's interesting that this cartoonist used the image of the melting pot and and ties fears of radicalism, fears of communism to the issue of immigration. There was a strong racial or ethnic element to the Red Scare of 1919, since it was widely assumed that radicals were foreigners and that most foreigners were radicals, the Red Scare was also an immigration scare and vice versa. In particular, many Americans believed that communism was a Jewish invention and a Jewish plot. Never mind that, that actual Jews faced vicious anti-Semitism and persecution in Russia, both before and after the revolution, and that the vast majority of Jews who came to America in these years were actually fleeing persecution. In the summer of 1919, a group of anarchists mailed a series of letter bombs to a number of figures in the US government, one of them to the home of A. Mitchell Palmer, who was Woodrow Wilson's attorney general. In the months that followed, Palmer struck back vigorously. He dispatched federal agents to raid the offices of radical and labor organizations throughout the country. He approved you know, what we would see as ridiculously broad search warrants and thousands of arrests. More than 3,000 persons were arrested, many of them held for months without being charged. The newly formed American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, documented flagrant violations of civil rights, cases of entrapment, police brutality, arrests without warrants, and so on. The government deported hundreds of immigrants, including the famous anarchist Emma Goldman. These raids effectively destroyed the IWW, the International Workers of the World, which was probably the leading radical labor union, and, and kind of crippled socialist politics in America. They destroyed the offices of radical organizations, they confiscated publications, they arrested or deported leaders. There was pushback against all of this and, and Palmer came under increasing criticism from the press and Congress. It gradually became clear that he was maybe a little bit unhinged. He claimed to have evidence of a plot to overthrow the US government on May Day, that is May 1st, 1920. He warned the nation to expect a wave of assassinations and bombings and general strikes, and police forces all around the country went on high alert as May 1st approached. The day actually came and went without really anything happening, and Palmer became something of a laughingstock afterwards. But his influence was long-lived. Palmer's point man in organizing the Palmer raids was a young director of the radical division of the Justice Department named J. Edgar Hoover. He was just 24 years old. Hoover took over Palmer's files, and by the early 1920s, he had nearly half a million names on his list of so-called subversives. And long after Palmer left the scene, Hoover would keep hunting communists and radicals, both real and imagined, for like another 50 years, he became the director of the Department of Justice's Bureau of Investigation, which became the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, in uh, 1935. And he held that post until his death in 1972. So 
decades of power and influence. Hoover became in many ways a power unto himself, so well connected with so much power and, and dirt on everyone in Washington that even presidents had to defer to him. There was also a wave of racial violence in 1919, 1920. Uh, racial violence, race riots, violence between black and white Americans. The summer of 1919 is often called Red Summer because this violence was blamed either rightly or wrongly on reds, that is on communists. The term race riot is, is often used, but it's a little bit misleading. Most of these quote, riots took the form of white mobs attacking African-Americans, although it's, it's also certainly true that in many cases, uh, Black Americans fought back. Some of these riots could be extremely deadly. In Elaine, Arkansas, a white mob killed uh, between 100 and 200 Black sharecroppers after they tried to form a union. It wasn't just in the South. In, in Chicago, African-Americans were beginning to move into what had been white working class neighborhoods. And there was a week of rioting in the summer of 1919 that left uh, 23 African-Americans and 15 white Americans dead and hundreds injured. The deadliest race riot in US history happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. A young black man had been accused of rape. Rape accusations were very often the catalysts for these things. Black veterans in Tulsa tried to protect him from being lynched and a white mob ended up killing more than 300 African-Americans and basically burned the black section of the city to the ground, leaving 10,000 people homeless. All through these years, there was a lot of hysterical coverage in the press, which again, conflated racial violence with radical violence. The headlines would say things like, have the blacks turned red? Again, because race and radicalism got conflated, it was widely feared that foreign socialists and communists were inciting African Americans to violence, even though a lot of the violence was actually going in the opposite direction from whites against blacks. The 1910s and 1920s also saw the dramatic rise of Christian fundamentalism in America. Fundamentalism is a, a loose label referring to a bunch of new Christian sects like uh, the Holiness Movement or the Pentecostal Movement that demanded a literal interpretation of the Bible. They demanded that the text of the Bible was literally true and should not be challenged by science or politics or culture. Fundamentalist churches grew rapidly in the 1910s and 1920s in rural areas, but also in big cities. Many poor and working class Americans were drawn to the intensity and simplicity of their message. This slide shows the fundamentalist preacher, Billy Sunday. Uh, Sunday was a pro baseball player back in the, like the 1880s. He played for the Chicago White Stockings, but he became an evangelical minister who pioneered uh, the use of radio and other mass media to reach huge audiences in these years. And then the other person on this slide is Amy Semple McPherson. McPherson was actually from near, born in near Woodstock, Ontario, very close to London, but she moved to California, to Hollywood, and built a huge church or temple in Los Angeles, California, and a whole media empire, again, using radio and film and the press, the new media, modern mass communication media, to reach a huge audience with a message of fundamentalist literal Christianity. Among other things, fundamentalist Christians opposed the evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin, uh, ostensibly because the Bible says that God made the world in seven days. But really, the reason fundamentalists were creationists is because Darwinian evolution was seen as a symbol 
of how modern science eroded morality. If you look at creationist literature from the 1920s, yes, of course it refers to the Bible, but actually the thing that comes up again and again is the great war. The war seemed a sign of how science was destroying morality. And even today, if you talk to creationists, if you try and you know, figure out why they, why they oppose the theories of evolution, it's not really because they are too proud to be related to monkeys. Uh, it's not really only because of the Bible. If you press creationists on what troubles them about evolution, they will often say something like, well, if God didn't make us, if we just evolved, if we just happened, then life is meaningless. Now, I don't think that's true, but I think it is that fear of meaninglessness that motivates and motivated creationism. Anyway, by the 1920s, certainly by the mid-1920s, several American states had outlawed the teaching of evolution. And this led to a very famous showdown on this issue, the trial in Dayton, Tennessee, of a high school science teacher named John Scopes, who was charged with teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. And the so-called Scopes monkey trial became a nine-day national sensation. Clarence Darrow, who might have been America's greatest trial lawyer, defended Scopes. And William Jennings Bryan, the old populist and Democrat who we talked about a few weeks ago, had his last great hurrah as the attorney for the state, that is the attorney prosecuting Scopes and defending a literal interpretation of the Bible. The national press, big city reporters from places like New York and Chicago poured down into Tennessee and had a field day making fun of the, you know, quote, ignorant hillbillies who banned the teaching of evolution. In the end, Scopes was found guilty and fined $100. People are sometimes surprised to learn the stakes of the trial were so low. In fact, Brian, even though he was the prosecuting attorney, offered to pay Scopes' fine for him. The monkey trial wasn't a national sensation because it was important, so important in and of itself. It was just one of these events that you know gets the whole country chattering. It was like a meme that went viral, like, like a picture, that picture of the dress that some people see as white and some people see as blue and everybody picks sides. Sometimes these events happen that give people an opportunity to make speeches, that give people an opportunity to line up on one side or the other of the culture war. And that's what my whole lecture today is about, really, a kind of culture war between two Americas or two visions of America. On the one side, we have a rural, small town-based America, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America, a pious fundamentalist Christian America. And on the other side, we have an urban America, a more cosmopolitan America, an immigrant America, the America of New York City and Hollywood and jazz music and flappers and the movies. And when I lay it out like this, I know it's very tempting to do two things, and I want you to resist both temptations if you can. One of them is to think of these two sides in the culture war as representing the political right and the political left. As I said before, the left-right spectrum really isn't that helpful in talking about American politics or American culture before maybe the Second World War. Yes, these two poles in the culture war that I'm talking about probably are the ancestors of the tribes in today's culture wars. But the Democrats and the Republicans had not sorted themselves out in the same ways. And views on political questions, the things that we think of as underpinning the left-right spectrum, I don't know, questions like how high should taxes be and how much social welfare should we pay, these did not line up exactly with the cultural tendencies I'm describing. 
So, you know, the people of Dayton, Tennessee, they were opposed to the teaching of evolution, but they were probably Democrats. They might've been populists back in 1896. Today, they're probably Republicans. You can't map the divisions of the 1920s onto the divisions of the 2020s in a simple one-to-one way. The other temptation that I would like you to resist is to think of one side in this culture war as being modern, representing the future, and the other side as representing the past. And it's easy to fall into this. I mean, I mean, they did it themselves. The kind of defenders of pious small town America saw themselves as defenders of the old America, the traditional America. They might even have said they were trying to make America great again. And the more urban cosmopolitan America that I'll talk about next time, uh, you know, they would have seen themselves, described themselves as modern, up-to-date, seen themselves as the future. But these are just stories. These are just slogans. No group has an exclusive claim on the future or the past. Christian fundamentalists saw themselves as traditionalists, as defenders of an older America. But fundamentalism as a movement was itself very new. It was very young in the 1920s, and it was a product of the modern era. I mean, take creationism. Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species back in 1860. Creationism didn't become a significant force in American politics until the 1920s. That's over 50 years during which, you know, Darwinian evolution didn't really get people that worked up. Creationism in the United States was a modern 20th century movement, in a lot of ways, a reaction to the First World War, a reaction to fears about what modern science might be doing to morality. And fundamentalism more broadly was a modern movement, a reaction to modernity. People like Billy Sunday and Amy McPherson could not have reached the audiences they did without their very canny use of modern media technology. They were not just based in small town America. Billy Sunday was based in Chicago, second largest city in the United States. Amy McPherson was based in Hollywood. And they were celebrities in a very modern sense. Their flamboyant style of preaching, their intense charismatic relationship with their fans, and I use that word fans, that's a modern concept, Uh, all that was modern too. So just be careful how you assign labels like modern or traditional. History doesn't only go in one direction. The figure of Billy Sunday brings us to the story of prohibition, because Sunday was a strong supporter of prohibition, that is the movement to ban the sale of alcohol. And the fight over alcohol became another episode in this larger cultural contest or culture war I'm sketching out today. The temperance movement, which was a social movement uh, to limit the consumption of alcohol, had been around since the early 19th century. People in the 19th century temperance movement thought of alcohol as a moral, social, and spiritual evil. They said it's bad for your physical health, it's bad for your spiritual health, and it's bad for society. They blamed alcohol for social ills like paupers and beggars, domestic violence, drunk men beating their wives and children, and so on. Especially in the 19th century, there was a close connection between women and the temperance movement. This idea that alcohol destroyed families or that women were the particular victims of men's alcoholism led many women to embrace the temperance movement. And the 19th century temperance movement was characterized and led by groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, which had a kind of genteel, moralistic, uh, progressive, in the sense of the progressive era, vibe. 
a lot of the temperance movement's efforts were directed at encouraging people to make the individual choice to stop using alcohol. So people would sign a pledge not to drink hard liquor and they'd carry a little card around with them that said they had taken the temperance pledge. But in the early 20th century, the temperance movement kind of shifted. It became more aggressive. Um, groups like the Anti-Saloon League came to the fore. These groups were more dominated by men than the earlier movement and less focused on getting individuals to resist the temptation to drink alcohol and much more focused on just making alcohol illegal. And the other thing that happened at this time is that the prohibition movement became much more racial and anti-immigrant in its appeals. I mean, alcohol use was widespread in just about every sector of, of American society, but culturally alcohol became associated with immigrants and in particular with working class Catholic immigrants. There's also clearly a class aspect to this. The boisterous drinking culture of the working class saloon, which was often dominated by immigrant men, came to be viewed with suspicion and, and even horror by more middle and upper class native born American Protestants. Fears about alcohol were conflated with fears of Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants who were stereotypically seen as heavy drinkers. With the coming of the war, prohibition got wrapped into anti-German sentiment. A lot of the largest breweries in America, like Anheuser-Busch, were owned by German Americans. And anti-liquor crusaders started calling alcohol un-American and saying that alcohol was destroying the white race or destroying the American race. And in terms like that, of course, you can see a conflation of racism, nativism, and prohibition. And it was this combination of moralism and nativism in the context of the First World War that brought about the political victory of prohibition. Congress passed the 18th Amendment, which made it illegal to manufacture or sell intoxicating liquor in 1917. This was ratified by the states in 1919 and went into effect on January 1st, 1920. So even though provoked by the war, it didn't actually start until the war was over. The main thing we remember about prohibition today is that it didn't work. I mean, when we think of the 1920s today, you probably think of gin joints and speakeasies, gangsters and flappers, and there's something fun about it. It's seen today as quaint, as misguided, but, but sort of amusing. But I think we can also see prohibition as an expression of those kind of nativist, America first, anti-immigrant fears. Also, prohibition just represented a huge expansion of the power of the police, the disciplinary power of the state. Prohibition meant more police on the streets. It meant more heavily armed police. It meant more arrests. It meant giving the police more power. The war on alcohol was, in a lot of ways, America's first war on drugs. And like the modern war on drugs, the people who suffered from it, the people it punished, were disproportionately poor people, non-white people not because they drank more, but because they were the ones most likely to be targeted. When the police raided saloons and speakeasies, those saloons were disproportionately located in immigrant neighborhoods or African-American neighborhoods like Harlem in New York City or Chicago's South Side. And it wasn't just police who did the raiding. Prohibition was also enforced by vigilante groups. The Anti-Saloon League, even the Ku Klux Klan took it upon themselves to burn down saloons, to threaten brewers, they used prohibition basically as an excuse to terrorize immigrants. 
So this cartoon depicts the KKK as the defender of the 18th Amendment, that is the defender of prohibition, with a fist smashing drinkers in saloons. And that linking of the KKK with prohibition is a hint, I think, that this is about more than just alcohol. And that brings us to another example of the reactionary 1920s, the backward looking 1920s that was nonetheless modern, and that is the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. The first Ku Klux Klan, as I talked about before, appeared right after the Civil War, while the South was still occupied by the Union Army. And that first Klan back in the 1860s was essentially a terrorist organization. They acted in secret. That's why the hoods and the masks. They were former Confederate soldiers uh, using violence and terror to try and carry on their fight against the Union and to fight in defense of white supremacy. But that Klan was largely wiped out by the 1870s. The second Klan, the Klan that emerged in the 1910s and 20s, was not a secretive terrorist organization based in the South. It was more like a fraternal order, like the Rotary Club or the Shriners, and it operated right out in the open. I feel like just in these pictures, you can see a kind of telling difference between the weird homemade outfits of the first Klan and the identical starched white robes and hoods of the second Klan. This here is clearly something that some weirdo stitched together in his attic, right? It's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be creepy. But this is a uniform. This is a business. Somebody made a lot of money mass producing these robes and selling them to these dumb suckers. The second clan was founded in 1915. It was inspired in part by D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, which mythologized the story of the original clan during Reconstruction. The second clan, as I say, was not really a secret terrorist organization. It was more like a social club. Its members paid dues, they bought robes and memorabilia. They could move up the ranks by paying more money or recruiting more members, uh, kind of like a pyramid scheme. And this clan was not confined to the South. This spread nationwide. It had like about 4 million members. Uh, it was strongest in the Midwest. It spread into Canada. There were clan rallies right here in London, Ontario in the 1920s. Now it was still a hate group. It, it did commit acts of murder and terror and violence, but it was mainstream and even respectable in a way the old clan never was. The clan even had a women's auxiliary, which you see here and noticed a slogan, America first. The second clan, the clan of the 1920s, still despised African-Americans, but its actual focus was uh, anti-immigrant, was stripping political and moral and civic power from especially Catholic and Jewish immigrants. It adopted as its mottos, America first and 100% Americanism. The Klan was active in politics in the 1920s. It openly endorsed candidates in both parties, uh, usually Democrats in the South and Republicans in the Midwest. During the war, the Klan fought for English only laws. They burned down stores owned by Catholics. Uh, they beat up or even sometimes lynched people they claimed to be draft dodgers or disloyal Americans. And then after the war, the Klan took it upon themselves, as I said, to enforce prohibition, busting up saloons and places where, especially places where Catholics drank alcohol. So prohibition became a way of lashing out against Italian immigrants or, or Irish immigrants and so on. The second Klan did go into decline after 1925. There was a great scandal when the, the so-called Grand Dragon of Indiana, the leader of the Indiana Klan, uh, kidnapped and, and actually raped and tortured a young woman that he had been trying to date. Um, she killed herself in order to escape him, and he was convicted of second-degree murder. 
I'm sure there's a point to be made there about how racial violence often goes hand in hand with misogynistic domestic violence and, and a kind of warped toxic male entitlement. But Stevenson's trial, this Grand Dragon's trial, uh, was a big scandal for the Klan. It also uncovered rampant corruption in the Klan, because in addition to everything else, the Klan was a grift, right? It was a big pyramid scheme that siphoned money from all of its dumb, deluded members. By 1930, Klan membership had dropped down to only about 30,000 members. And then, and then the Klan was even further delegitimized by the war against Nazi Germany, and it formally disbanded in 1944. But the, the longest lived and, and probably the most significant expansion of police power or hardening of the state, the longest lived legacy of this moment of hardening and contraction came in the realm of immigration. The Immigration Acts of 1921 and 1924 basically closed America's doors to immigrants from much of the world, reversing more than a century of openness to immigration. And that change would shape American society for decades to come. Historically, the United States has been open to immigration from all over the world. Americans think of themselves as a nation of immigrants. You see this graph of immigration to the United States by decade, and you see that in the decades around the turn of the century, so the 1890s, the 1900s, the 1910s, immigration to the U.S. had reached record levels of almost a million immigrants per year. And this is not a graph of per capita, this is a graph of absolute numbers. So that is really significant levels of immigration back around 1900. And this obviously is part of what drove these fears, drove those calls for 100% Americanism. But it wasn't just the, the number of, of immigrants that alarmed Americans, it was where immigrants were coming from. Americans in the early 20th century distinguished between what they called the old immigrants who were often white Protestants from places like Britain or Germany, and the new immigrants who were Catholics from Italy and Ireland and Greece and Poland and Jews from Eastern Europe. The United States' first act to limit immigration was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which denied Chinese laborers the opportunity to emigrate to the United States. And this was followed by the so-called Gentlemen's Agreement of 1907 that similarly barred the immigration of Japanese. The 1907 Immigration Act also prohibited sick, feeble-minded, or anarchist immigrants from entering the United States. Notice how, how this sort of blurs racial categories, medical categories, feeble-minded, and political categories like anarchist all get mixed up together. Here's an anti-immigrant cartoon with Uncle Sam holding his nose at the so-called dirty immigrant who is bringing with him poverty, disease, and on his back, a barrel of rum or whiskey or something labeled Sabbath desecration. Oh, and a bomb labeled anarchy. So that's all of these categories blended up together. This quote from a Republican congressman saying, there is no similarity between the self-governing stocks that sired the American people. There's that idea again that, that only certain people are fit for self-government and the stream of irresponsible and broken wreckage pouring the social and political diseases of the old world into America. And here's a similar quote from a Democrat, so we get it from both sides of the aisle, calling for Americans to build a wall uh, to protect themselves against criminal agitators and red anarchists and Bolsheviks. And in this cartoon, you see it's the American laborer who is calling on Uncle Sam to build or repair the wall keeping immigrants out. 
1921, Congress passed the Emergency Immigration Act, which drastically reduced the number of immigrants allowed to enter into the United States. And it did so on explicitly racial lines. The way the Immigration Restriction Act worked is they limited the number of immigrants who would be allowed from any country to 3% of that country's population in the United States already in 1910. So in other words, they set national quotas for how many people could come from each country based on the proportion of people already in America in 1910. And the effect of this was to drastically reduce the total number of immigration, but also to try and shift the balance of immigrants allowed back from places in Southern and Eastern Europe to the old immigration from places like Germany and Britain. Three years later, Congress doubled down on this policy with the Immigration Act of 1924. And the 1924 Act made the previously temporary act permanent. It also cut the quota from 3% to 2%. And it also moved the baseline year, uh, which they used to determine the quotas from 1910 back to 1890 which basically reduced you know, to next to nothing the number of immigrants allowed from Eastern Europe and, and barred immigration from Asia and Africa almost entirely. The 1924 Act also created the Border Patrol, which was charged with policing the boundaries of the United States. And it created a new category of person, the illegal alien that had not existed in American law before that time. There was one fairly large exception to the Immigration Act, and in it we see the tension between American nativism and the interests of American business. Because business interests pushed for and got an amendment to the 1924 Act to say that it did not apply to immigration from the Western Hemisphere, so from Canada, but also from Mexico or Latin America. So even as America was closing its doors to immigration from Europe and the rest of the world, the US-Mexico border remained open essentially and unguarded. And the reasons for this are entirely economic. For most of US history, big business has been in favor of immigration because business likes cheap labor. And the interruption of European immigration during the First World War and then immigration restriction forced employers to seek out sources of labor closer to home. They turned to African-Americans migrating uh, from the South up to the North. To some extent, they turned to women, but they definitely turned to immigration from Mexico and Latin America. And of course, this is all very ironic given recent demands to build a wall along the US-Mexico border. So a lot of the things I talked about in this lecture were temporary or short-lived. The Red Scare only lasted a year or two. The Sedition Act was repealed in 1921. Prohibition lasted for you know, 12 years, but it was temporary too. It was, it was undone in 1932. But the racial quotas of the Immigration Act stayed in place until 1965. Look at how long it took for immigration to come back up to the levels it was at before restriction. Through the Great Depression, through the Second World War, through the Holocaust, through Stalin's purges in Eastern Europe. And who can say how many people lost their lives who might have found liberty in America? Who can say, looking at this, the empty space, the, the hole in this graph, what America lost by not offering them a home? Something to think about. Thank you for watching. We'll talk about the other side of this whole culture war next week.